Well, I want to begin by simply uh, thanking the many of you who have endeavored uh, to pray this week for this church. And when I say this church, what I mean is this group of people who comes here. You've been praying for one another. Some of you have, have set yourselves to a devoted type of prayer this week and seeking his favor and calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and I'm deeply thankful. I'm convinced that God has been at work. Um, whoever was praying Tuesday, I don't know what you were doing, but something was working in me, so uh, thank you. And, and I'm convinced that what we're going to see uh, is God's work over these next weeks and months and hopefully over this next year as he answers those faithful prayers and hopefully as we continue to pray in that way. If you missed Friday night, Friday night was our missions dinner here, um, and it was a great time. We had a, a panel with our supported missionaries, and, and probably the, the best moment for me uh, was a personal account. We asked uh, everyone, what was the most moving moment you've had uh, in your missions career? And, and one of the high points for me was, was Carlos sharing. Carlos is our missionary with Partners International, works all over the world, uh, and, and he shared that one of his most moving moments was seeing the multitudes in Istanbul, Turkey, millions of people, and him probably or likely being one of the only Christians there. And what God impressed upon him was that God himself is the Lord of the harvest, that, that he was responsible for obedience, but God's the Lord of the harvest. And, and that text is important, that phrase is important, and it comes to us straight from the lips of Jesus, actually. In Matthew chapter 9, you can turn there, that's where we're going to hang out today. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is the one who says this. I'll read the entire section starting at verse 35. Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now today, I'm only going to have one thing to call you to as the people of God. There's only really one exhortation that, that God's going to have for us today. But to get there, we're going to break this passage into four uh, parts, four statements that I hope are going to undergird that one calling that we have as the people of God. So there's four statements. Those of you who are type A personalities, you'll know when I'm about to be finished. Statement number one in this text is a statement of compassion a statement of compassion. Here it is, verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, compassion is, is a deep emotion. Biblically, compassion is something, something that goes a lot deeper than we might normally think of. Sometimes we, we might look at compassion and say, okay, well, this is just, uh, we feel some sort of sympathy for someone and certainly it includes that. Or, or we feel bad in some way for someone in a, in, a, in a bad situation, and that's fine. But biblically, compassion is a deep emotion. It causes a person to feel profoundly moved. It's seeing others and having a great deep sympathy and care for their situation. It is most literally 
a gut reaction. That you look at somebody and and you are so moved to your core that, that you feel it. And this is what Jesus has as he looks at the crowds. It might be helpful to understand that there are different ways that the compassion of Jesus is aroused. You see, we can fall into the trap, and oftentimes we do fall into this trap. As we read scripture, we look at Jesus and we, and, and we think, well, of course he was a compassionate person. He, he went out and he taught the crowds and, and he cared for them. And, and we, we bring Jesus' compassion down to this, this small portion where we say he cared for people physically. And that's true enough as far as it goes. Jesus did care for the needs of people. In fact, we see this throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 14, here's Jesus' compassion. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. His compassion in this case was was aroused by the physical infirmities that he saw in people, that, that they needed healing. And so in response to this great compassion, he heals them. In Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus has compassion aroused by physical, practical, daily needs. A need for bread, a need for sustenance, a need for food. And he feeds them. In Luke 7 As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then the story goes on that he raises this dead son. His compassion in this case is aroused by by the emotional effect of a broken world, of a dying world, and seeing a woman who is dealing with this great grief, dealing with the the reality of death in this world. He responds by giving life. In Mark chapter 6, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, And he began to teach them many things. We'll come back to this phrase. You might think it sounds familiar. It's in our text today. This this sheep-shepherd language. But notice that the compassion aroused here is of their status of being sheep without a shepherd. But what Jesus does is he teaches them. In response to their lost state, he begins to teach So what type of compassion is this in our text today? In Matthew 9, what is it that arouses Jesus' compassion? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for, here's the reason statement. They were, like, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This comes very close to the verse that we just read in Mark's gospel, sheep without a shepherd. In Mark's gospel, when he saw these sheep without a shepherd, he taught them as as if to say there's something spiritual going on. That to answer this problem or, or to be compassionate in this way means that he will teach them something about the kingdom, something about God, something about himself. 
Here he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed. They're helpless. But key in on this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. Because whatever is meant by this phrase is going to dictate what it means to be harassed, what it means to be helpless. It's going to dictate, I think, what it means to meet this need, what it means to act in compassion for these people. Sheep without a shepherd. To understand a little bit more about this phrase, we have to understand where it comes to us. It comes in the middle of of Matthew's gospel. See, these gospels that God gives us are are distinct. They they give us different snapshots of Jesus. And Matthew's gospel is very distinct. It, it It is very significant in that it is the most Hebrew of all the gospels. It has the most Jewish flair to it. In fact, many times throughout Matthew's gospel, he is quoting Old Testament references. Because primarily the people that he's trying to seek are Jewish people who need to see their Messiah, their King. Oftentimes, Matthew will say, and so fulfilled the word of Isaiah or Jeremiah or another Old Testament prophet. In fact, most scholars come to the the book of Matthew and agree that that Matthew's primary purpose was to give a gospel to the Jewish people that said, this is Jesus, this is your king, this is your Messiah. Everything written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in this Jesus. And so Matthew's gospel and, and Matthew's theme and Matthew's theology affects what we hear when we hear sheep without a shepherd. See, I'm convinced that Matthew is is showing us again something of the Old Testament here. To be specific, I'll take you to Ezekiel chapter 34. You don't have to turn there. We'll put this up on the screen. There is a great theme throughout Scripture of this shepherding. That God himself shepherds his people. And, And Ezekiel 34 is maybe the height of this theme throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, that is, their leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains And on every hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. On a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from among the peoples. And gather them from the countries. And will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountain 
mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Verse 22, God says this, I will rescue my flock, They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. When he saw them, he had compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Let me ask you one more time. What's going on here? What is the point of what Jesus is saying? He is not merely saying that these people have physical need, though they do. He is not merely saying that they need healing, though they do. He is saying at a core level that they need God. He is saying that that like those sheep in Ezekiel, that they need the Lord himself to come and shepherd them. And how did Ezekiel say it would happen? Over and over, God says in Ezekiel 34, I myself, the Lord speaking, Father God, as we would say, I will come and shepherd my people. I will come and shepherd my people. I will come and shepherd my people. And then finally he says, I will do it by my my shepherd, David. The son of David will come and shepherd God's people. He will be the means by which they they are gathered, by which they are cared for. There's irony in this moment. Jesus looks at these sheep without a shepherd, and he himself stands as the shepherd. See, here's the upshot of all this. The ultimate solution to being a sheep without a shepherd is to come into the fold of the true shepherd. The ultimate solution to this problem that we see here is essentially to come to Jesus. The answer is not merely food. It's not merely healing. It's not even merely being raised from the dead. It is to come to Jesus. It is to come to the Messiah. It is to come to the King. It is to come to that Prince who will shepherd the people of God. This is a spiritual problem. Jesus had compassion for the people because they needed Him. And my friends, this has to drive who you are as a Christian. As you look on people with compassion, it has to be the deepest type of compassion. It has to be the fullest type of compassion. It has to be the type of compassion that is utterly biblical. You say, no, but don't we care about people who are physically ill and don't we, don't we care to go to them? We do. 
What about the people who, who don't have enough food? What about the, the people in Latvia who, who were serving? Well, you can ask Don. That is not his deepest concern. We do all those things as expression of compassion, knowing that there's the deepest compassion, which is connecting people, lost sheep, harassed, helpless people, to the shepherd, the prince, the son of David, who is the good shepherd. See, see our world and our Christian world often falls into to this, this basic level of compassion. And all of a sudden, a generation goes by where people began caring deeply about bringing people to Jesus Christ through the gospel. And all of a sudden, we, we, we devolve into only caring about feeding them. Jesus talked not just about physical hunger, but about spiritual hunger. I believe Jesus would lift his eyes to some of those we've helped physically and still say, even though their bellies are full, even though their, their infirmities are being cared for by us Christians, he would still lift his eyes and say, you're like sheep without a shepherd. Don't be deceived. This is happening all over our world and we want to stand in the deepest type of compassion. Do we care about physical suffering? Absolutely. But we also care about eternal suffering for those who have not met the shepherd. Statement number one is a statement of compassion. A compassion that goes far beyond physical need to the deepest spiritual need of people meeting the shepherd. That's the statement of compassion. Number two, there's a statement of reality. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Now, just real quick, we have to notice Jesus is changing metaphors on us. First he's talking about sheep and shepherding. Now he's talking about farming but we've got to understand, first of all, that this is metaphorical language, but it's actually fairly common. Jesus, in many contexts in the New Testament, speaks of bringing people to Christ and people coming to faith in Jesus as harvest. I think it was John chapter 4, the, the woman at the well who goes back and then finally Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Lift your eyes, look at the fields, they are, they are ripe for harvest. What was he talking about? He's talking about people who were coming to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. They were getting saved. He says, look. They're ready to be harvested. People are ready to be brought to me. Just a few chapters after this in the Gospel of Matthew... Jesus is going to speak many kingdom parables. And one of those kingdom parables is in harvest language. It's about people coming to faith in Christ through the gospel. That they realize who he is. That they repent of, uh, turn away from that is. Uh, of their sin and the things that they were pursuing. And look with faith to the son of God who gave himself for them. And as Jesus speaks about people coming into that message by that gospel. He speaks in harvest language. So what is it that Jesus said with this harvest language? Verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest, that is people coming to me, the harvest is plentiful. 
The harvest is plentiful. That is a statement of reality. And so here's my question, church. Do you believe that? You say, well, that's a silly question. Of course we believe it. Do you? See, here's my experience with with others and even in my own life. I can read something like that. The harvest is plentiful. But then when I walk out into my world to, to which I am called as a missionary... I walk out into my neighborhood, I walk out into my family, I walk out into my friend circles, and what I see is a group of people, not, not that is a plentiful harvest, but I, ah, nobody wants to hear about this. Even if I did share, no, no, surely nobody would. Christian, do you look at your world? Do you look at your circles of influence? Do you look at the people whom God has put you in their path? Do you look at them and think to yourself, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. This is a statement of reality that that ought to drive us. How does Jesus know this? Let's think about this. Elsewhere, Jesus would speak again with shepherd imagery about the people that comprise this plentiful harvest, he would say this uh, in John 14, or excuse me, John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus looks out again at this harvest, at this great field of sheep, and he says, no, I have sheep. Some are of this Jewish fold, some are Gentiles. Praise God that he has sheep that are Gentiles like us. He says, I have sheep, and they will hear my voice, and they will come. And so he can look to the fields and say, no, 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 you have to understand disciples, people who are going to take this gospel to the nations, to your neighborhoods, you have to understand the harvest is plentiful and my sheep will hear my voice. You see, Jesus sees the crowds and he sees the multitudes differently than we do. We see people who who we think might be resistant to the gospel message, who, who might be offended, and many will. But Jesus sees a flock that he's bringing in. He sees sheep who will hear his voice. He sees a harvest that is plentiful. What if we really believed this? would change everything. This would change the way we see our neighborhoods and our offices. You would walk into your office and these co-workers, you, you would look at them with the eyes of Jesus and you, and you would begin to think, who is it that God is going to draw to himself? Who is it that is going to hear the voice of the shepherd? And, and, and you might actually have excitement that, that I want to engage them with the gospel of Jesus because I want to see where the sheep are. I want to see who's going to respond. I want to see the harvest come in. And so I want to be the means of that. 
would change how we see our neighborhoods. This would change how we see our extended families. This would change how we see our clients. This would change how we see our acquaintances. Because we, we, we would see them with the eyes of Jesus who saw a flock, who saw a harvest. We would yearn for them to meet their shepherd. Statement of compassion that goes way beyond physical need to the deepest spiritual need of the true shepherd. Statement of reality that God has many sheep that he will draw to himself. Statement number three is a statement of the problem. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. Just review here. So Jesus' compassion is grounded in their lack of connection to him. He assures the disciples that many are out there who will come. There is a great harvest. And the problem is, not enough will go. The problem is, not enough will do the work in this harvest field. This is our our missions week, and you know that I usually have a deep heart for the gospel to go to unreached places of the globe, which I think is the definition of missions. But today, today, I'm wanting us to lift our eyes to other unreached fields. I'm wanting us to not lift our eyes to the unreached nations. I'm wanting us to drop our eyes to the wheat fields that we are standing in ourselves every day. We are deeply committed to bringing the gospel to the nations, and I hope that increases Always, as the years go by, we are deeply committed to that. And maybe sometimes, maybe, to the detriment of the fields that we're standing in. Call that missions, you call this evangelism, that God has given us, in our circles of influence, the opportunity and the privilege to to herald the message that is going to bring in His harvest. I mean, think about this for just a second. What if, what if for a moment you thought God was sovereign? What if for a moment you thought God was actually in control of your life? What if for a moment you thought, I'm in this neighborhood that I live in because these are the people that God wants me to reach? What if you thought that? say all this because I think that this is utterly needed in the church today. I I think that this is utterly needed in in our church today, and, and I might have that view because this is utterly needed in my life today. I'm not standing here as one who has it all figured out or who has arrived. I'm standing here as one who is convicted by this word. told many of you recently that one of the books that has affected me over this last year is a book called Radical, written by a young pastor um, in the South. Very biblical. Many of you have been reading this, and so you know what I mean, that this is a challenging book. But I want to read you 
one section from this book that has to do with this passage today. David Platt writes, When Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, apparently his concern was not that the lost world would not come to the Father. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. I imagine that this is still the problem. I imagine that this is the problem among 6,900 unreached people groups, mainly in the Middle East now, who do not have the gospel, who do not have any witness. Are there any who will stand and go to those who have no witness? I imagine that this is the problem among the nations, and I imagine that this is the problem here in North Spokane, a place with hundreds of Christians, thousands of Christians. And would Jesus come and look at our North Spokane neighborhoods and say, the harvest is plentiful? And would he say, the laborers are few? We stand every day in a field of harvest. Statement of compassion goes way beyond physical need to the deepest spiritual need of bringing people to the shepherd. The statement of reality is that God has a flock. He has many. He has a harvest. And he will draw those lost sheep in. The statement of the problem is not enough of Christ's followers are willing to speak the gospel to those who need it. Finally, the statement of solution. Now, if you follow that strain of thought, if you follow those, those preceding statements, there's, there's a great compassion because people don't have Christ. God's going to draw his flock, his harvest, but not enough people are, are willing to go. It's an easy solution, isn't it? Not enough people are willing to go. The solution is just go. Right? It's not what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is astonishing. There is, there is this simple solution. There's not enough laborers. Go labor. And that's not what he says. He says, earnestly pray. He says, kneel before the Lord of the harvest. And you plead with that Lord of the harvest. Lord, you send more workers. You stir up hearts. You stir hearts that people would go and take the gospel to their neighborhoods and their co-workers and the nations who don't have it. You stir hearts, Lord. You're the Lord of the harvest. And that Lord of the harvest doesn't just mean that he's Lord of, of drawing people to Christ, of drawing in those lost sheep, though it does. It also means that he's Lord over those who will steward this gospel among those lost sheep. 
It means that when you see someone rise up and say, I'm giving my life to bring the gospel to those who need it, you can say, praise God. Praise the Lord of the harvest for sending that person. At one level, this is so odd. Why wouldn't you just tell us to go? And, and, and people do. These disciples went. If you read on in Matthew, one of the very next things that he does is he sends out these disciples to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. It's not that, that we as prayers aren't goers. It's that primary to this mission is that we would stand before the Lord of the harvest and plead with him. Why? Because God is not only glorified to act for his purposes, he is glorified to act for his purposes in response to believing, faithful, fervent prayer. So that when that boy who's seven years old and asked last Friday night at our missions dinner, when, when, he's, when he's 21 and he comes back to this church and says, not what do I have to do to prepare to, for the mission field, but when he's 21 and says, I'm prepared and I'm going, we praise God for answering prayer. The problem is not enough will go. The answer is to pray fervently. So today, I'm going to ask, ask you to make a commitment to prayer. I told you there's only one thing, there's only one exhortation, there's only one command for the people of God, the disciples of Christ here, and this is it, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly that God would send workers. And so I'm going to ask you to commit to praying. Will you pray for the rest of 2012 this way? Will you set apart a year to pray that God would send forth people, that he would send forth workers. And I'm not just talking about foreign fields here. Would you pray over this year that God would stir the hearts of his young people? You know that we have teenagers being challenged this week just recently, am I right? That Rick is challenging his young people on Tuesday nights to go and, and share the gospel and proclaim the gospel in their schools. You think that's easy? These kids need our prayers to undergird them, to send them forth in the power of God. Would you pray this year for that? That we would see a harvest of young people coming to Christ. Would you pray that we all of a sudden can't find seats because there's a bunch of teenagers? Would you pray that God would raise up evangelistic hearts in this congregation, to minister in this city to, to the hurting, to the homeless, to the displaced, to the addicted? Would you pray that God would raise up men and women from this church to, to bring the gospel to the unreached multitudes who are flowing to our doorstep in Spokane as refugees? Would you pray that God would strengthen and move your brothers and sisters? Look around. Just take a minute. Just take a minute and look around this place. None of you are doing it. Look around this place. Those people, those people are the means of the gospel going forth in this neighborhood and in this city. Those people that you just looked at are the plan. And you say, well, that's not a very good plan. 
Well, they just said that about you too. It is a good plan. It is a good plan because we have a Lord of the harvest. You look at people and you say, they're not going to do this. They can't do this. They can't overcome their fear. They can't overcome all of the barriers to take the gospel and to be what God wants them to be in this world. Yes, they can because he's the Lord of the harvest. Will you pray for them? Will you pray for your brothers and sisters here in this body that they would bring the message of life and hope and forgiveness and salvation from sin and death to their neighbors, to their families? To their, to their co-workers, to their friends, to their clients, to their acquaintances? Would you pray that they would begin to see themselves truly as ambassadors for the one who has redeemed them? Would you pray that God would give all of us a spirit of power and boldness and strength to put our, our fears to death in this? Would you pray that your brothers and sisters in this church would earnestly long for God to use them to bring those lost sheep to the true shepherd? This actually isn't rhetorical. I'm actually asking you to pray this way this year. I'm asking all of you, well, let's start basic. I'm asking all of you to at least, at the very least, you pray today whether it's this evening, whether it's at lunch, you spend some time praying that God would raise up from our midst people to steward the gospel among the nations and our neighborhoods. Okay? That's, that's one occurrence. I'm asking some of you to commit every month to setting aside time to pray for this. Every month. That's, that's 12 times. I'm asking others of you to commit the rest of this year every week you'll pray that God would raise up people and stir hearts to bring the gospel to those who need it. That's 50 times. And I'm asking a few of you to commit the rest of this year to pray daily that God would sweep in in the power of his Holy Spirit and stir us to bring the gospel where it is most needed. Revival preacher of the last century named Leonard Ravenhill spoke of prayer and evangelism in the context of revival, and here were his words. The law of prayer is the law of harvest. Sow sparingly in prayer, reap sparingly. Sow bountifully in prayer, reap bountifully. The trouble is we're trying to get from our efforts what we never put in. May this not be true of us. Not this year. Multitudes are waiting to hear. The unreached nations are waiting to hear. Our city is waiting to hear. Our neighbors are waiting to hear. Our families are waiting to hear. And our most urgent need is to come into the presence of the Lord of the harvest and plead with him to send workers into his field.